2006, February 9th, Lecture 25, A Tale of Two Galaxies, The Milky Way and Andromeda, for Astronomy 162. We'll begin in just a moment. All right, so the last two lectures have largely been historical in nature to illustrate just how difficult it was to figure out what the Milky Way was and what these other spiral nebulae were. The understanding which was gained about 1925-1926 with Edwin Hubble's observations of the distances to Andromeda really established the universe was a very much bigger place than anyone had, had previously suspected. Now, some people would make the philosophical claim that it was infinite, but it's one thing to make a claim based on philosophy and another to actually demonstrate the immense size of the, of the universe. Today we're going to step back a little bit from the sort of historical mode, although we'll, certain historical bits will sort of pop in because it's illustrative of how you learn things about a system you actually live in, is to talk about two galaxies, the Milky Way and Andromeda. Turns out, by just happens by happenstance, the Milky Way and Andromeda are very similar in their properties. And so we can actually, by studying both our own galaxy, which we see up close and personal because we're riding inside of it, and Andromeda, which we can actually see laid out before us. So the Milky Way in the upper left-hand side here, our view from the inside in the infrared, and Andromeda in the lower right, this beautiful photograph by an amateur astronomer, give us insights into what the Milky Way would look like if we could step outside of it and what the structure of the Milky Way is and some of its constituents. And we're going to use this as the stepping off point for the talking about the physics of galaxies. So today's kind of a packed key ideas slide. We're going to go through a lot of material today. We're going to first introduce the basic structure of the Milky Way and Andromeda. It has what's called a disk spheroid structure. And we'll describe graphically and verbally what that means in just a moment here. We're going to find in a series of observations which were made by the astronomer Walter Bada in the 1940s that we can actually divide the stellar content of the Milky Way and Andromeda into two broad populations, two broad classes of stars that are distinguished by where they are within the galaxy, their metal properties, and their kinematics, their orbits, what kind of orbits we find them on. We're going to divide them into population one stars, which represent the young, metal-rich disk stars and open cluster stars. These are going to turn out to have very, very ordered motions. In fact, they're all going to appear to be orbiting in circular orbits around the center of the galaxy. Our sun is a population one star, and it orbits with the rest of the population one stars around the center of the Milky Way. Population two, on the other hand, are going to turn out to be old, very metal poor, spheroid and globular cluster stars. And these are going to turn out to be also distinguished by having very disordered and elliptical motions. They don't all lie in the plane of the Milky Way, but lie out of it. We'll see a little bit of how that gives us some clue to the structure and history of the Milky Way and Andromeda in just a moment. We're going to then bring together the fact that we have two different populations of stars, among other things, distinguished by their differences in metal content, to say something about what we call the chemical evolution of galaxies. Where do the heavy elements, the metals as we call them, come from through the process of nucleosynthesis? We talked about the origin of those metals inside of supernovae, inside of fusion and massive star cores. But how, does that act, how do we actually see the signs of that chemical evolution, that spewing of material out into the galaxy, and again, giving us clues to the way in which galaxies probably were assembled and formed? And finally, I want to zoom into the very centers of these galaxies and bring up something which is relatively new, long suspected, but only recently established well with observations, that lurking in the hearts of these galaxies are very unusual objects, supermassive black holes with masses in excess of a million times the mass of the sun. And I'll show you some of the evidence for the, for the presence of these rather exotic beasts. We'll see these things come up again next week when we talk about how these may be very common in all spiral and perhaps even elliptical galaxies, 
and they appear as something called active galactic nuclei. So we have a lot of territory to cover. Let's put it together today. So we'll start out by saying, what are galaxies? We've done all the historical review over the last few days. The basic bottom line is this. Galaxies, so-called, are large assemblies of gas, stars, and dust, all held together by their mutual gravity. So if we look out, we see, for example, the Milky Way and Andromeda as examples of galaxies contain a large amount number of stars, a lot of gas and dust. We're also going to see in subsequent lectures, beginning next week, galaxies that contain all stars and virtually no gas, and then galaxies which are extremely gas-rich but have very small stellar content. So it runs the whole gamut. The sizes of galaxies have a very wide range. The very largest galaxies that we found have sizes up to a trillion stars or more. These are extremely large objects, often found sitting in the centers of large, rich clusters of galaxies. The smallest things that we recognize as galaxies have no more than about 10 million stars inside of them. So it's a very wide range of phenomenon. A 10 million star galaxy appears as a little tiny faint smudge on the sky that you really have to almost squint at to see is actually a an actual structure held together by gravity. Milky Way and Andromeda turn out to be examples of bright spiral galaxies. They have a stellar content each of about 200 billion stars apiece. A lot of those stars are actually low-mass stars, stars of the mass of the sun are even smaller. But most of the light we see comes from things like the giants and the really, really bright stars. So it's a little bit hard to tell the stellar content just by looking. We have to look at galaxies in much more detail. I kind of put a scale on what does it mean to be 200 billion. 200 billion is actually very close to, for the Milky Way and Andromeda, combined at 400 billion stars. The Nabisco company has baked 400 billion Oreo cookies since the first one rolled off the factory line in 1913. So we've actually got a scale here. Basically, there is one Oreo for every star in the Milky Way and Andromeda. So even though this is a very large number, it's not an unimaginably large number. What gets large is when you start thinking about how many galaxies there probably are in the universe, and that runs up into the tens to hundreds of billions, at which point Nabisco better get cracking if it's going to catch up. Let's look now, let's going to focus today on the nearest by examples of galaxies, the Milky Way and Andromeda. And the reason we're going to do this is because, unlike most galaxies that we're going to be able to study, we can actually see the star stellar content by measuring individual stars in both of these places. For the Milky Way, that's pretty obvious. For Andromeda, it's only recently become possible for fainter stars, but of course, going all the way back to Hubble, the very brightest stars are accessible. And so by contrasting and comparing the, the, the properties of the Milky Way and Andromeda, we can learn something about both of these systems. So let's start by first defining what we mean by Andromeda. Now, we used to call it the Andromeda Nebula. I'm going to just drop that word. It's really the Andromeda Galaxy and Andromeda for short. It has a designation you'll often see, M31. That means it's the 31st entry in Charles Messier's catalog of non-stellar objects. So we'll often refer to this, or see it referred to as M31. It's easily visible. You can actually see this with the naked eye on a very, very dark night if you know exactly where to look. It looks just barely visible to the naked eye. It doesn't look like a whole lot because it looks mostly like a faint smudge of light. Mostly what you see with your eye is the bright central concentration of stars here in the very center, the so-called nucleus. If you look at this through a telescope, like for example if they decided to point in the right time of year, which would be the fall and the early winter, if you pointed the 12-inch telescope up on Smith Lab at Andromeda, what you would see is kind of a faint, very faint smudge of light, almost disappointing in, in appearance actually, of just this inner bright region here in the center.
These beautiful pictures that I'm showing you are the result of long time-lapsed time exposures. You really can't see detail in galaxies like spiral arms and dust lanes, except in a very few rare cases with very, very large telescopes, the Earl of Ross's 72-inch telescope being one of them. That makes galaxies kind of disappointing targets unless you're a photographer. Andromeda is about 700 kiloparsecs away. Hubble had vastly overestimated the distance to Andromeda, largely because he was measuring, he thought he was measuring bright delta Cephei stars. It turns out he had mistakenly measured some W Virginis stars, which are intrinsically fainter. He thought they were the brighter equivalent he'd, because they were misidentified. He overestimated the luminosity and therefore overestimated the luminosity distance. When that was corrected later by Bada and others, and of course in the modern day, this distance estimate's been refined to about 700 kiloparsecs. Now it turns out the andro distance to Andromeda is still an issue. It's still something that people are trying to measure because you want to measure it with very high precision because you now want to use objects you can recognize in Andromeda as a stepping stone to look out to other galaxies. And so there's still a challenge, even, even almost a century later, of trying to find the distance of this object. The issue now is not the bulk distance, but sort of refining the precision of that measurement. There are a lot of similarities between Andromeda and the Milky Way that are the reason we're going to be spending a lot of time with it today. Both of these are very large spiral galaxies. They both contain about 200 billion stars, similar content in gas and dust. So if you look at the state of evolution, the mix of young and old stars, high metallicity, low metallicity stars, the mixture of gas, dust, young stars, old stars, it's all pretty similar between the Milky Way and Andromeda. There are differences, as we're going to see, but we can sort of average across those, and it gives us a nice way of looking at both galaxies because, in a way, Andromeda is sort of the twin sister of the Milky Way. And so, as a consequence, we get an unprecedented ability to view as if what our galaxy should look like more or less from the outside. There are differences. Our galaxy is probably more actively star-forming. It has broader spiral arms. But the bulk, the bulk properties, the basic, real important quantities that get at the heart of what it means to be a spiral galaxy can be viewed in both. And it can give us clues as to how to actually do our surveys from the inside by looking at this very good example of what the Milky Way might look like from the outside. Now, what do we learn? Well, the first thing we find out is that spiral galaxies have a very distinctive two-part structure, the disk and the spheroid. The disk is what really gives the appearance of the galaxy in photographs, that spiral arms and all the really characteristic shape of the galaxy, largely comes from the brightest part of it, which we call the disk. This is a, a thin disk of stars, gas, and dust. It's very extended, in the case of the Milky Way and Andromeda, between 30 and 50 kiloparsecs across. And it's crossed by spiral arms, which are outlined by a combination of bright blue stars, which is an interesting hint to where star formation occurs in these disks, and gas and dust, the raw materials out of which star formation occurs. We're going to see a little bit more about that in detail tomorrow. This disk is the bright part, but surrounding this disk itself is actually embedded in a much larger, fainter structure called the spheroid. You can think of the spheroid not so much as a sphere, as kind of a very thick, puffy spheroid. It's kind of flattened on the poles and large on the equator, and the disk is embedded deep inside of this. It's centrally concentrated in that if you could somehow remove the disk from the spheroid, you would find that the number of stars increased rather dramatically as you move in towards the center of the spheroid, and it falls off very rapidly as you move outward. So it's not a uniform distribution. It's mostly concentrated. Most of its mass, most of its stars are in the center, but it spreads out over a very large extent. 
The other thing you would notice if you remove the disc out of the Milky Way or Andromeda is that the spheroid has got virtually no gas or dust. What little gas or dust is actually there doesn't actually belong to it dynamically. It's probably falling in from the outside and just going through the spheroid. So the spheroid already has distinguished itself from the disk in a number of ways. Instead of being flattened, it's puffy. Instead of being sort of spread out, it's very strongly centrally concentrated. And also, it's lacking in gas and dust. It's lacking in the raw materials out of which to form stars. If I want that raw material, I've got to look in the disk. Here's a picture of a nearby galaxy, not Andromeda or the Milky Way, but one called the Sombrero Galaxy, Messier 104. I've chosen this because it's got an unusually bright spheroid component. So you can see very clearly the disk here, outlined in this case by dust, and there's a little bit of blue stars, but you can sort of see the, really the appearance of a disk embedded inside this larger spheroid of stars. You can see how that spheroid gets very, very bright and centrally concentrated in the middle, and then falls off slowly, fading off to the outside. In fact, there are still spheroid stars way out here, but they're now getting so spread out, they're beginning to fade into the background of light that just sort of makes up the general background of the nighttime sky. Any of these bright stars, for the most part, that you see here are in our own Milky Way, and we have to look out through them. We're riding inside the disk of the Milky Way. We have to look out through this screen of foreground stars. So whenever you see these photographs of the galaxies, bear in mind that all these stars you're seeing, for the most part, really are in our own Milky Way. A couple of things in this picture to point out. You'll notice these little smudges like this one here. I'm sort of pointing out with my laser pointer. They're little red smudges. There's some back here. There's a couple down back here. Those are actually much more distant galaxies, further away, even behind the sombrero here. In a lot of the pictures we're going to show of galaxies like this, the sky is literally lousy with galaxies. They're just all over the place. There's also some other features in this thing, which we'll point out in a later lecture, are actually structures associated with the sombrero itself. The bottom line here from this picture to come away with is that there's a disk. It's thin, very thin compared to its length. And it's embedded within this large spherical spheroid, as we call it, sometimes called a halo. You can sort of see a kind of a glowing halo around the object. These, the difference of size among spiral galaxies, as we'll see tomorrow, is that spiral galaxies are distinguished by differing degrees of the strength of this spheroid relative to the disk. In the case of the Milky Way and Andromeda, it's not quite as dramatic as this. This is actually chosen to, to emphasize the spheroid better. But if you could actually really crank up the contrast on a picture of Andromeda or the Milky Way, you'd see the spheroid. It's more or less like this. Now, to understand a bit about what's going on, this disk-spheroid distinction is not just simply where they are in space, not the difference between a thin disk distribution and the sort of thick, puffy spheroid. And that really came into an understanding from one of the other, you know, one of the real giants of, of, of middle 20th century astronomy, which is a guy named Walter Botta. Most of the work that I'm going to describe today, Botta did during 1944, which for those of you who can pay attention to calendars, will know is right in the middle of World War II. Botta was born in Germany, even though he was an American citizen. As a, as, a, as a naturalized American citizen born in Germany with whom we were at war at that time, Botta was restricted from actually taking part in the scientific work that most American scientists were doing during the war, like building the atomic bomb, artillery, things like that. So as a consequence, he basically had the Mount Wilson Observatory to himself while everyone else was busy. Furthermore, if you remember, Los Angeles is a large city on the western coast of the United States. Even in the 1940s, we were worried about Japan coming in and bombing the United States, so the city was blacked out at night. Now, I, used to wor I worked at Mount Wilson in the 1980s when I was a student at Caltech, 
And putting an observatory right above the Los Angeles basin is just a bad idea. The light from all those streetlights and buildings just really washes out the sky. So here we are, right in the middle of the war. It's essentially, the, it is the largest telescope in the world. Los Angeles is blacked out, and Walter Botta has nothing to do but use the 100-inch telescope. So not only did he get a lot of time on it, but he could pick and choose the very best nights to observe. And so he decided to concentrate on studies of globular clusters, that the outer spheroid, or what they called at the time, the halo of our galaxy, and the Andromeda galaxy. On the night when the atmosphere is steady as possible, when there's a marine layer wiping out what few lights are lit up in Los Angeles, Mount Wilson is a stunning astronomical site. It just happens to be located near one of the largest population centers in the West Coast. So as a consequence, during those stunning nights, a photograph of the Andromeda galaxy shows it breaking into stars. What Herschel and all the others wanted to see with their little telescopes, these modern high-tech telescopes, showed beautifully. But Botta did something other than just simply take a photograph with a single plate. He used photographic plates that were sensitive to red and to blue light. So he would take two different photographs, put filters onto them to get red and blue light. The reason for doing that was as follows. If the disk turns out to be made up of a lot of young, hot stars, those hot stars will, produce, will be blue in color and therefore produce more blue light than red light. So you'll see the disk in high contrast in a blue photograph whereas old evolved giant stars are cool stars. They emit mostly red light. So when you took a red light photograph of Andromeda, what you found was mostly the old stars in the spheroid and the old stars in the disk. The blue stars would fade out by comparison because even though they're intrinsically very luminous, they emit a lot less red light than they do blue light. The other reason for doing it is that the difference between the red and the blue light actually gives you something called the color index. A blue object will have more blue than red, a red object will have more red than blue, and all gradations in between. That turns out to be a very good surrogate for the stellar temperature of the source. It's not as good as a spectrum, but these stars are way too faint to get a spectrum of with any of the technologies at Botta's disposal. So it was Botta who really pioneered efforts that were started by others to use color as a surrogate for temperature. Now, by being able to detect individual stars, by having a color which gives you an approximate temperature, by having the brightness from the photographic plate, he was able to make the first crude Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams, or an equivalent of a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, for both disk and spheroid stars, not only in Andromeda, the ones he could resolve, but also for our own Milky Way. And what he found was that the disk stars in Andromeda, and the disk stars in our own Milky Way, have HR diagrams like open clusters. They have big, bright blue main sequences. So that tells you right away that those hot blue stars are young stars. They're young main sequence stars. Because remember, the upper part, the bright part of the main sequence, which is all you're going to see in Andromeda because it's so far away, is composed of stars that have just now formed. But you don't find those in the spheroid. You only find those in the disk. Furthermore, when you use the brightest spheroid stars, they're all luminous red stars. They turn out to be red giants. Where do you get a lot of red giants? In an evolved population of low-mass stars, in a very old cl cluster. In fact, the HR diagram for the spheroid of both our galaxy and Andromeda resembled globular clusters. It wasn't an exact match, but it was awfully close. Globular clusters, we know today, and by then they realized, were ages of many billions of years. They were very, very old stars because all the young stars have just evolved away. 
So Botta's work using the Mount Wilson telescope was really essential to understanding the differences of these populations, not just where they were, they showed dramatic differences of age. The disk was made up of mostly youngish stars, or had the only places where you found young stars, and therefore there was ongoing star formation. But in the spheroid, there were no such bright blue stars. All you found were old, very evolved stars, which means the spheroid formed all of its stars long, long ago in the past, and all we're seeing now are the red giants, the remnants of those that have evolved since that past long ago epoch of star formation. This is a very important clue as to what's going on within these two different structures. Now, this idea of stellar ages is fairly important, so we'll just sort of quickly review from what we saw last week. Massive stars have very short lives. High-mass main-sequence stars, if you see them, have to be young because they only live for about 10 million years. Low-mass main-sequence stars don't give up their age. They don't show their age very well. If I see a red dwarf, I don't know if that's a red dwarf that formed yesterday or a red dwarf that formed 10 billion years ago. I simply can't tell because they live for 10 trillion years. The same is true of the sun. If I see a G star, if it's anywhere less than about 9 billion years, I have no clue to its age. It could be recently formed or not. It takes a lot of detailed observation to tell. So as a consequence, if you ever see really high mass stars, you know you've seen recent star formation. Furthermore, we get some clues by looking at the cluster Hertzsprung-Russell diagrams we talked about last week. Open clusters, very young clusters, have very blue main sequences. They have lots of blue main sequence stars because they're young. Whereas globular clusters and old clusters, the blue stars in the main sequence have long since evolved away. In fact, most of the brightest blue stars have gone supernova eons ago. But now what you're seeing in the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram are the red giants from the four and three and two, and even if you get up to 10 billion year old, one solar mass stars, which have evolved and puffed up into their red giant phases. There are lots and lots of low mass stars in a cluster. High mass stars are relatively rare in general. So when you start to build a giant branch in your cluster, you're build, you have a lot of stars to build it out of, and these things become a very bright population. Remember, they're many, many times the luminosity of the sun. Now, when we talk about young and old, I need to sort of quantify it. When I talk about an old population here, I'm going to mean about 10 billion years old. Something so old that stars like the sun are beginning to evolve away from the main sequence. That's what I'm going to really mean when I say an old population. Young is going to be anything from just formed right now all the way up to a few billion years. It's kind of an intermediate age between about a billion years and 10 that is less distinctive for this discussion, and so I'm going to sort of leave it out. So I'm just going to deal with the extremes here because they're the most illustrative. But do bear in mind that there is a range of ages involved. Now, Bada noticed that spheroid and disk also divided themselves up by age. More old, evolved, red stars in the spheroid, lots of young, blue, unevolved main sequence stars in the disk. And he divided them into two populations of stars, broadly speaking. One he called population one, which are the young disk stars and in our own galaxy, the open clusters, and population two, which are the old spheroid stars in the globular clusters. I gotta say something about this sort of type one, type two thing. This is actually kind of a running joke among astronomers. Whenever you see one object, it's, it's a phenomenon, two objects is a class, three objects is class one and class two. Okay. There's a tendency before you understand a phenomenon really well to try to divide things up into types. 
What Bonner was doing was comparing types of stars, dominant type of stars near us, which are going to be stars like the Sun, which are going to be disk stars. He called those of the first population. Those older stars that belong to the spheroid are going to be pretty rare nearby, as we're going to see. And so he called those population two. They're more common out in the spheroid and in the old ancient globular clusters. Fortunately, this leads to a slight reversal because, as we're going to see in a moment, there's differences in the ages of these populations, which is an opposite to their numbers. In fact, there's a putative population three, which has not yet been observed, which is the first generation of stars. So when you're thinking stellar ages or stellar population in terms of first generation, second generation, third generation, these numbers are backwards. I'm sorry, it's just the way it is. We like to do things backwards in astronomy. Now, popula getting back to the story, population one and population two are distinguished by two basic, uh, two basic areas. One is their location within the galaxy. The second is this combination of the age and their chemical composition. And by chemical composition, I mean how much metals they have relative to their hydrogen content. All stars should start out with a lot of hydrogen, a lot of helium, and a little bit of the rest of the element table called the metals. So the metallicity, or the chemical composition, is a very important key to understanding the differences between POP1 and POP2. Okay, so we have to look at them as differences not only where they are in the galaxy, but their composition and their age. Now, let's take a look at this now in more detail. Population 1 stars, and to show a characteristic set of population 1 stars, is this beautiful open cluster here. We find population 1 stars in the disk of the galaxy, both our galaxy and in the Milky and in the Andromeda, and we find them in the open clusters. When I scan across the face of Andromeda using t deep telescopic photography, I can actually identify open clusters that are the analogs of the bright open clusters we see around us in our own Milky Way. So these are going to be the sites of the population one stars. The ages tend to be kind of a mix. You find a lot of young stars, but you also find some fairly old stars as well mixed into the bunch. In the case of an open cluster, of course, they're all the same age, so you're getting a snapshot of one of those age composition groups. The basic composition of population one is fairly metal rich. That means about 70% hydrogen, 28% helium, and pushing up to 2% of metals. And what I mean by metals is everything from lithium all the way up through the rest of the periodic table. The chemists really hate me. I, I, didn't, do I didn't do very good at chemistry. I came very close to failing chemistry my freshman year in college. So I was really happy when I became an astronomer and all of chemistry could be turned into hydrogen, helium, and the metals. So the astronomers are very lazy about that. In this case, whenever I say metals, I mean all the heavy stuff. Generally, what we measure to measure metallicity is we, measure, we use iron as an estimator. But sometimes we use things like oxygen or, or carbon or easy to measure heavy elements and use those as stand-ins for the rest because they all go more or less in similar proportions to each other. So if I took spectra of the individual stars in this open cluster or I picked an obvious disk star or even the sun, what I would find is a fair amount of metals, only about 2% total, but still, that's quite a bit of metals, as we're going to see. The environment also stands out for population one. It's often a very gas-rich environment. We find a lot of raw materials out of which to form stars, a lot of gas, a lot of dust, especially for the youngest members of population one. A very young cluster like this, this is probably about a, oh, maybe a few hundred million year old cluster that I've shown back in here, will have lost most of its gas. But if I find a very young population one cluster, it can actually still be embedded in the massive gal jet galactic 
um, giant molecular cloud out of which it formed. And so I generally find population one stars, the youngest of the population one stars, near where most of the gas and dust in that spiral galaxy as well, and that tends to be in the disk. Population two, by contrast, the purser child for population two is like a globular cluster. The also, or any random star you happen to find floating out in this immense spheroid outside the disk of the galaxy. They tend to be very, very old stars. In fact, they tend to be the oldest stars in the Milky Way and Andromeda, ages of 10 to 15 billion years. The 15 billion years is actually not as true anymore. Some of those ages have been coming down a bit more towards 13 and a half, 14 billion years, which is kind of good because that's about the age of the universe. So these are actually the first stars to have formed after the initial generation long times ago. This is the first things that really came into the assembly of the galaxy. By comparison to disk stars or stars like the sun, these are very, very metal poor. They have a like one-tenth to one percent of the metal content of the sun. So if I scooped up a handful of material from the sun and I scooped up another handful of material from a typical POP2 star, I would have anywhere from 10 to 100 times less atoms of iron, oxygen, carbon, all the metals that I would find in the sun. It really is a very dramatic difference in the metal content. I said about 75% helium, 25 point, almost 25% hydrogen, about 25% helium, and a small fraction of a percent of metals here. So this is very close to the primordial abundances of the first generation of stars. The first generation of stars contributed a little bit of the metals. But for the most part, the hydrogen helium here is pretty close to the raw proportions that came out of the Big Bang. The environment of population two stars also stands out. They are in general, almost without exception, gas poor. There's no raw material, there's no gas running around at all, and there's no evidence of recent star formation. I do not find recently formed hot, blue, low metallicity stars in the spheroid of the galaxy or in globular clusters. Everything I see in the globular clusters or in collections of spheroid stars says old. It just screams old. I find mostly red giants as the bright stars. What main sequence stars I find are all solar mass or below because these are populations that are older than 10 billion years. So stars like the sun would have long since evolved off the main sequence. So it's a very different population than population one. It stands out in so many different ways. Any questions about these distinctions between pop one and pop two before we go any further? Okay. The next piece is a little more subtle. Not only do these things stand out in terms of their ages, their compositions, and where they are located in the galaxy. But remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about proper motions and radial velocities. Turns out that they have very different kinematic properties. They're on very different orbits. And so when I look around me in the, in the little bubble of around a kiloparsec around the sun, where I can measure proper motions and distances and radial velocities really well, population one and population two stars individually can stand out by their motions. Population one stars are like the sun. They tend to be in, they're in the disk, they're in the plane of the Milky Way, and they have very, very ordered motions. They tend to be in mostly circular orbits in the plane of the Milky Way, just orbiting quiescently round and around the center of the galaxy. Furthermore, for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, they orbit in the same direction. There are a handful of retrograde stars, always someone got to be different. But for the most part, they all orbit in the same direction. 
they're remembering dynamically the general sense of rotation of the clouds of gas and material that the Milky Way formed from. Furthermore, stars at a given distance from the center of the galaxy feel the same mass and therefore the same gravity as those other stars nearby, and so they move at the same speed. They have the same circular velocity moving around. Now you can see the origins of a couple of the questions on your homework. So this is kind of a way of getting a hint when I look at an individual star as to which population it belongs to. I can't take a detailed spectrum of every star. I can't measure the metallicity of every star. It takes a lot of work to measure the metallicity of one. I'm not going to do it for 100,000. So if I wanted to find all the disk stars, what I want to do is look out into the Milky Way around me and find all the ones that are moving like me. Because the sun is a population one star, all the population one stars nearby will share similar motions. And the way I judge those motions because I'm on, this, I'm, we're on the Earth orbiting the sun is I look at the proper motions and the radial velocities. That's why people study proper motions and radial velocities. It's to distinguish the different groups moving kinematically together through the Milky Way disk. Pop 2 stars, on the other hand, aren't in the disk. They're in the halo. They're in the spheroid. And so as a consequence, they orbit in all possible directions because at some point in their orbit, they have to fill up that big spheroidal volume. So as a consequence, I get all kinds of different orbits. And they're not going to be nice and ordered and circular. Some of them are going to be long elliptical orbits that go way out and then plunge deep inside. And because of Kepler's second law, we know that an object on a long elliptical orbit spends most of its time far away from its center of mass. So it moves very fast to the center of our galaxy, and they're real slow, spending most of its few hundred million year or billion year orbit way in the outskirts, way in the outer part of the spheroid. We also tend to find orbits going every which way. Some of them are going retrograde, some of them are going prograde, and they're tilted and angled all over the sky. And there's a huge range of speeds, because you might have a star on a relatively slow, stately, circular orbit passing by, but on a long elliptical orbit, it'll speed up really fast in the middle and go very slow on the outside. So there's a huge range of speeds involved. So one of the ways in which a POP2 star makes itself known is if it's way out in the spheroid or in a globular cluster. Well, that's kind of a high, soft one. But what if we could only look at the inner kiloparsec around us? Would we find any POP2 stars? Sure, we should expect a few might be cruising th through at any given time. Most of what we see around us are main sequence stars. You may remember back to when we first showed, showed the main sequence, 85% of nearby stars are on the main sequence. Those 85% of stars are actually, for the most part, metal-rich population one disk stars. But every now and then, there's a wacko. Captain star is a good example of this. Captain star has a huge proper motion. It's the second largest proper motion. And it has a huge radial velocity. And it's a poopy little red star. When you take its spectrum, it has very little metals. Guess what? It's a population two spheroid star that happens to be cruising through our local neighborhood right about now. They're rare because the spheroid is big and spread out. But we can't step outside of our galaxy to view the spheroid. We can look at Andromeda and see its spheroid. But we can find ec examples of spheroid stars cruising through our local neighborhood. They stand out because, well, you know, it's like pop one stars are a flock of sheep moving along. Pop two stars are the sheepdogs zipping in other directions. They really stand out as a kinematic population, as a moving different population. So that's one of the things that studies of proper motions and radial velocities gives us. It lets us sort 
the huge number of stars around us, the hundreds of thousands of stars in our local kiloparsec of volume, into mostly disk stars in a handful of those population two stars that by chance are close enough for us to get a really good look at as they go cruising by. So, to kind of summarize this whole POP1, POP2 stuff, I'll pop this slide up. I won't go through it in detail because we've just covered all of this. But basically, you can distinguish population one and population two in a number of ways. <laughs> by where they are in the galaxy, disk and open cluster versus spheroid and globulars, by their relative ages, a mix of young and old stars, combined with the oldest stars only in population two, population one are metal rich versus metal poor population two, because they tend to have young stars, you've got blue main sequence stars, whereas in the population two, there are no main se blue main sequence stars. Because they're in the flattened disk, all orbiting the center of the galaxy, they have ordered circular orbits, whereas the spheroid is random elliptical orbits all over the place for the most part. And finally, the disk is a gas-rich environment out of which young stars form again, whereas the spheroid, the population two, formed their stars billions of years ago and there's no more new star formation, so we expect to find no raw materials. So even though this looks like a lot of different properties, you can see how they all hang together. They're all related to one another, and they're all trying to tell a similar story. Part of that story is the story of chemical evolution. Metals, as we saw in the last few weeks, are created by fusion deep inside the cores of massive stars. They get out of those stars in supernova explosions. So supernova explosions go off, wham, blow out, a whole large mass of many solar masses worth of metals and junk out into the interstellar medium. It mixes in with the interstellar gas and the disk. And when the next generation of stars form, they take up those metals and become metal rich themselves. So what I expect is, as each subsequent generation of stars forms within the galaxy, each subsequent generation will become more and more metal rich. Metals, if you will, are the sort of passed on cumulative heritage of a star. A star which formed first in the universe is going to form out of purely hydrogen and helium. The next first generation of those stars explode and seed a little tiny fraction of metals into space. That mixes with the hydrogen and helium from the Big Bang and what little got blown off in the supernova. So the second generation of stars will form with mostly hydrogen and helium, but now about a one-tenth of a percent or a hundredth of a percent admixture of a little bit of metals. When those massive stars of that generation go supernova, they make even more metals added on to the mix. And by the time we get up to the sun, we can get up to almost 2% metal content. Stars are factories for turning hydrogen and helium into metals. And so as I see a brand new young stars forming in the Milky Way, they're all metal rich. We don't find young metal poor stars because the environment has been polluted by the metals from all the previous generation of supernovae. So a bottom line to remember is higher metal content occurs in later generations. I do not find old metal rich stars. I find young metal rich stars and old metal poor stars. So there's a timeline hiding in here, which gives me a way of kind of dating how long things have been going on in addition to the HR diagrams. We can actually begin to see signposts of a steady evolution, a steady unfolding of the chemical content and age content of a galaxy. And we can actually take apart some of galactic history. This is the bones, if you will, of galactic history. It's the clue to galaxy formation. Basically, chemical evolution, you've got to remember, only affects populations of stars, not individual stars. Fusion occurs in the deep interior. 
And with the exception of a few bits of carbon-nitrogen oxygen burning, which goes on in that shell, a star's metallicity is pretty much fixed at birth. There's very little modification of a star's composition, even though its deep interior may be undergoing radical changes. You have to turn the star inside out and blow it up to get those metals out. So there the idea is this. Once a star is formed, its chemical composition to a first approximation is fixed. So the metal content that I see in a star is giving me a clue as to which generation it belongs to. So this is now when I went back and said, you can't tell a young red dwarf from an old red dwarf. Well, now we have a way. A red dwarf that formed with the first generation of stars in the Milky Way will be old. old I can't tell age because it's still in the main sequence, but it has much less metals. So that's the clue that allows me to break away from just using the main sequence age. I can say, hey, look, that thing's got a lot of metals in it. It must be old. It must be from that first generation. Whereas another red dwarf has lots of metals, it's a relatively recent formation. So it allows me to piece together galactic formation. In the last couple of minutes, I want to show you a couple of new results that are related to the Milky Way and Andromeda. Deep in the centers of the Milky Way and Andromeda are supermassive black holes. Supermassive means mass is in excess of a million times the mass of the sun. I'm just going to introduce them today. We're going to talk about them later next week. They're basically found by the effects of their gravity on the surrounding stars. We can't see them. They're black. But we can see stars orbiting a whole lot faster than they should be if there was nothing there. Furthermore, some of these places show excesses of X-ray and radio emission, as if gas falling into a giant black hole is heating up violently and emitting light. Now, we can use the orbital speeds, if we can see them, to actually measure the mass, because the circular velocity of something is related to the square root of the mass, enclosed. So if I can see the orbital motions, I can tell there's a black hole there. Here's a beautiful picture, only about two weeks old, at the center of our Milky Way galaxy. If I zoom in, I see a bright cluster of stars in, in infrared wavelengths, but in X-rays, there's a bright point source of X-rays buried deep inside. If I now look in more detail, I find in the infrared, there's this funny object which is flaring on and off in a relatively irregular way. What's going on there? Well, if I zoom in really close, none of that, and watch the stars over the course of 10 years, some of those stars are orbiting empty space. If I measure the mass from that empty space, I estimate approximately 4 million solar masses. If I do the same thing in Andromeda, I can now not look at individual stars, I get almost 100 million solar masses. All I can say for the end of the lecture is, what the hell is that doing there? And we'll find out next week. Okay, your tests are going to be up front here. We'll get them arrayed on the front table.